Coming up on this week's show, some ultra-rare Konami games have been found. A huge company from the past is reborn. And we get the inside story on the biggest skateboarding game ever. This week's show is brought to you by The Economist, the smart guide to the forces changing your world. And Beer 52, the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 189, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And just us two this week. Oh, um, you sack Joe. What's going on? <laughs> He's away in sunny Spain at the moment. Now, the thing I thought, you know, Joe, obviously, he spends most of his time in sleazy rock clubs in the middle of the night. <laughs> he needs to get a bit of sunshine, a bit of vitamin B every now and then. So oh, uh, yeah. He's away for a couple of weeks. But look, we've got an absolutely blinding couple of shows on the way over the next week or two. And I just want to say a big thank you because I've had loads of tweets over the last week. If you are new to the Retro Hour podcast. Now, last week, we did our first ever crossover podcast episode with the amazing lads from Arcade Attack. The amount of tweets we've had from their listeners going, I hadn't heard the Retro Hour before and I've just come on board this week. It's pretty it's, incredible. It's a great way to kind of inform each other. Yeah. And also I'd love to inform the listeners that now the Retro Hour is actually searchable within Google. So you can search even just Retro Podcast and we pop up and you can press play straight away. Straight from Google. That, that blew my mind when you showed me that the other day. So if you are new to the podcast, welcome on board. If you're one of our listeners who've, you know, we get people who've listened to every single show for like nearly four years now. We really appreciate that. Welcome to this week's podcast. We've got a really good one coming up. Now, today we're going to be talking about a legendary sports game. And we did say it in the opening then, the biggest skateboarding game ever. Yeah, this is uh, the Tony Hawk Skater Series, which was just absolutely amazing. And we're going to speak to Ralph D'Amato, and he's the main producer from Neversoft. Uh, which were the company behind this, and their engine was kind of used on other stuff. There was a whole load of snowboarding games that came out. Do you remember that? And there was even BMXing games. But he's creating a film which is called Pretending I'm Superman, and that's all about the kind of history of the Tony Hawk games with Tony Hawk in it himself, Bob Burnquist. Oh, it's just so cool. They're incredible games. I remember, you know, the first ones on the PlayStation. I remember them back in the day, and the soundtrack on those was just out of this world. Well, world. it was like GTA did that yeah. really good soundtrack before, and then Tony Hawk's just did the, like, rocky kind yeah. of grungy <laughs> skater one. It was great. Very of its time, but, I mean, there is. I mean, you play those games again, and it's just so 90s when well, you play those It's games. kind of a new genre, wasn't yeah. it, as well, that, like, skate games before that weren't amazingly good. I remember Skate or Die on like the Commodore 64 yeah. and everything, which was, you know, it was all right for the day, but yeah, nothing like Tony Hawk's. That just took it to the next level. So Ralph Tomato is going to be our special guest and he'll be on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. Now, it blows my mind that we're recording this at like, what, 7pm and it's already dark outside. Yeah. <laughs> what a year we've had in terms of live events. I mean, I think this has been our biggest year for live events. We've been all over the place. We've been to Ireland, we've been to Norway. Poland. Poland, oh God, yeah. Germany next Germany, yeah. (laughs) And obviously the Play Expos that we did earlier on in the year too. And there is more coming up. Usually when it gets to around this time of year, we're kind of just relaxed and there's no more events. Usually we can hide inside (laughs) in the winter and play computer games. Not this year though. Now we've actually got three huge events that we're going to be at over the next month actually. So the first one is going to be at the Retro Computer Museum in Leicester. Now, they're going to be doing, they do a big annual bash every year, and this is called Fantastic Retro Gaming, happening on the weekend of September 21st. And you're going to be DJing at that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to be DJing there on my Amigas, which should be really good fun. And this is kind of to help support the museum. So it's a £10 donation per person. And, you know, you're going to get food, live music with that. 
a quake death match. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's some awesome stuff going on, and uh, I think Neil from the Retro Man Cave is going to pop down as well. Yeah, and I know um, they have those virtuality machines there that are worth a try too. If you watch Nostalgia, did a video all about them recently. Oh, when yeah. He was there, so definitely, if you want to come along and have a go on those, definitely worth attending that. And then um, something new that's going to be happening in our hometown. We'd have to travel very far. This is going to be the Retro Games Fair in Nottingham. Yeah, this is awesome because uh, we always hear about these retro game fairs, but they're all over the place. But this one's actually happening in our hometown. Now, this is on Saturday, October the 5th. And um, it looks like there's going to be loads of bargains to be had here as well. The first one that's happened in Nottingham, which, um, you know, our city, it's always been a bit hit or miss for kind of retro games. We'll go through stages where there's a lot going on, then there's not much. Well, it will become trendy and the media types will get involved and then suddenly... Um, it will become just back to the shops again, you know. And our good friends at Bitmap Books are sponsoring it as well, so they're going to be oh, there. awesome. And it'll be happening on a Saturday, October the 5th at the Britannia Hotel. Uh, that's in Nottingham City Centre, open from 11am till 4pm. Two quid to get in. And the good thing about these shows is you just get so many bargains that you will not get online. Well, you don't have to pay postage and packaging. Yeah. You know, I always kind of thought, is this stuff going to be cheaper at shows? Like, surely not. And then I actually went to shows and I was like, wow, it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And yeah, you haven't got people like, you know, bidding wars and all that going on as well. So if you've not been to one before, uh, definitely worth a look. And we're going to be there too. So if you spot us around, come say hi. And then Amiga Germany on the 11th and 13th of October. Uh, my first time in Germany and to an Amiga show of this size as well. Oh, mate, you're going to love it. Uh, Pilsner all round. Yeah, you said it was on tap last, last year, oh, didn't God, you? Free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I might, I might have to take a couple of weeks off after the, uh, the after party to that. So, yeah, a few big events that we're going to be at. There is more, actually, that we'll let you know about soon. But, of course, you can keep, keep an eye on all of those on our website at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into this week's show, let's just give a huge thank you to the people who've made it into the Hall of Fame this week. Now, how do you find your place in the world's most prestigious retro gaming high score table, Ravi? Oh, you go to theretrohour.com and click support. And you can support us via PayPal, which is good because you can put in kind of any currency. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't matter where you are from the world. And every bit of money that we raise goes back into the podcast. Now, we're coming into the last quarter of the year. All our renewals generally happen around December time. Um, so it will be really appreciated. Any amount, big or small, it all goes back into the running of the podcast. And you'll get a mention on a future episode in the Hall of Fame, like this week... Mark Pearson. Gary Heather. Paul Harrington. And Aunt Ove Todnam, who all made donations into the running of the show. And you can do the same at theretrohour.com. Now, last week, I know you're getting very excited about that um, nice little box that you had on your uh, your desk over there. <laughs> Beer 52. Oh, yes. That, that was good. Uh... I, I filled my fridge and yeah. I'd been drinking a different beer every night. I don't know if that's healthy. <laughs> <laughs> but when they taste so good, who cares? Now, you actually took these to, uh, you went to Retro Man Caves, cave over the weekend, didn't you? Took the beers down there? Yeah, yeah. And uh, th- there's some really nice ones, actually. Um, I quite like the citrus um, IPA, like yeah. kind of lemon, lemony one. And then they had this one uh, called... Uh, United We Can, which was basically all about all the different ingredients from Europe in one kind of drink. And that was really nice because, you know, they had breweries from all around. And what were the chickpeas like? Oh, the chickpeas were quite crunchy, actually. Yeah, they were good. <laughs> now, the reason we're talking about them is they're a big supporter of our podcast, Beer 52. They are beer pioneers, and they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Now, they deliver eight craft beers to you every month with different themes. Now, over the past, we've done stuff like California, Norway, Belgium, Amsterdam, and, of course, they also pick the best ones from around the UK as well. Now, we'd like to give you your own free box of Beer 52. All you have to do is pay for 
£4.95 for the postage. And actually, if you sign up within the next two weeks, you will get an extra two free beers included as well. So we're talking 10 free beers. And if you do this right now, you'll have them ready for next weekend. Is there anything better than a weekend with beer and video games? Oh, it's great. And it's just this whole case. Yeah really big amount of size I was just pulling them out constantly you know <laughs> my fridge I've had to clear room Ravi's eyes lit up like Christmas when he <laughs> opened that box last week and they'll also be sent to you next day as well and will contain beer from all over the world and the thing about it is you can kind of tailor the beers that are in there too so you know you mentioned you like the pale IPA yeah yeah week. like my dad would hate that he'd, yeah. he'd probably go for like more bitters yeah. And that kind of stuff. So it's all, all to your taste. Yeah, you can tailor them. You can rate and review the bees you've collected on their website as well. And they don't hold you to ransom. You can leave at any time. So if you'd like to get your own free box of Beer 52 on us, all you have to do is cover £4.95 for the postage. Nip onto the website right now at beer52.com forward slash retro. And like we said, it'll be set next day delivery. Get 10 free beers if you sign up within the next two weeks at beer52.com forward slash retro. Right then, we've got some good stories to talk about this week. A legendary company from back in the day on making a return. Do you remember Microprose? Yes, I, I do, actually. They used to release everything. I, I, I even remember they had Microprose soccer at one yeah. point, which was a, a kind of a one against FIFA, wasn't it? I mean, the big thing about Microprose back in the day were the, the simulation strategy games. They were like the kings of that, weren't they, in the late 80s and 90s. Stuff like Civilization that was on yeah, there. Yeah. Uh, Pirates, that was a great game. Railroad Tycoon came out on there too. Now, Microprose actually went under in 2003. So it's been a a brand that's been missing from gaming for many years. But a bit earlier on this year, a guy called David Laguette, he's actually the um, creator of Titan IM, which is um, one of the biggest open-world simulators out there at the moment. And he also does stuff like um, develop simulators to be used in the military as well. So, you know, he's, he's got a very good background. And he's actually now bought the rights to Microprose. Oh, that's really cool, actually, because um, kind of Maxis kind of took over from um, that simulator kind of area and yeah. stuff and uh, I always love Microprose and y you're right actually simulators at the moment they're, they're not really the kind of there's these weird uh, stuff like Euro truck simulator yeah. and stuff but <laughs> farming there's yeah, farming simulator <laughs> and weird mundane tasks but there doesn't seem to be like uh, Apache helicopter you know military style stuff like we used to get with the huge manuals and all the controls yeah you're right I mean they were a lot of them took a hell of a long time to get into, but when you did, it was like, you know, when it clicked with you, you could spend weeks on them and time yeah. would just go even, by. Even, right. even Microsoft Flight Simulator was fun, <laughs> I remember that. Well, Microprose Reborn, I mean, what's really exciting about this is he's actually got Bill Steely, who was the former owner of the company and the co-founder of Sidmeyer's series as oh, well. Wow. Okay. He's involved in it, so they're working together on this. And the first game is going to be Warbirds 2020 that they reckon is going to be out hopefully before Christmas this year as well. Now, they've actually got a Twitter account that's been kind of teasing, a bit cryptically, just a few graphics and box art kind of stuff from the games. But we don't know much more so far, but it looks like Microprose are back proper this time. Oh, that's so. good. And, and you think what they'll be able to do with simulators now with all the yeah. modern effects. Woo. And I love seeing, I mean, just looking at that logo made me really yeah, nostalgic. Yeah, yeah, it did. With the helicopters in the background. Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. there is just something warm and fuzzy about seeing those, like, you know, I miss seeing the ocean logo on games. Stuff yeah. like, how nice would that be to see on an introduction to a game or the Gremlin logo coming Signosis for me, I just love yeah, that. Yeah, there is something, you know, really, really nostalgic about seeing them. So, welcome back, Microprose. You have been missed. Now, Konami are obviously one of the most legendary video game companies in the world. 
Just when you thought you'd seen everything by Konami, there couldn't be possibly anything out there that we didn't know about. Well, it turns out these ultra-rare NES Konami games have been found recently and emulated as well. Now, this is a series called Space School. These were so rare because these were actually educational games. They were released in the 80s by Konami. No record of them really online until recently, but it turns out there is a Russian YouTuber. Um, he's called Russian Geek, actually, and he's you know real hardcore Nintendo collector, and he found these games, and he's now put up a video playing them. He's teamed up with a guy who's like really well-known in Russia for being kind of a somebody who kind of deconstructs his old games and gets them running again, you know, like strips down the code and all that kind of thing. But it turned out the weird thing about it is these games were made with the Japanese national broadcaster back in the day, with Nintendo. And there were a series of six games that were made for schools. This so is, you couldn't yeah. buy them, you can play them at home. They're literally for schools. And the seventh game was an educational title made for a Japanese gas company. <laughs> <laughs> this is really weird, because looking at these um, games, uh, they've got a lot in common with... Do you remember the Codemasters released a load of games and they had to have that adapter on the front of it? Yeah. That would basically break the piracy code of the um, thing because it wasn't an official Nintendo seal of quality. Yeah, the copy locker gets stripped out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they've got a kind of adapter here, which is interesting. And you don't see any Nintendo um, markings on the actual cart. It does say Famicom. Yeah, well, I mean, it was a Japanese release, but I think, you know, you did get that right there. There was an adapter you needed called a QTA to run these. But I think the reason was because they were titles that were only released in schools and went on the shop shelves. Mm. So this device, like you said, probably bypasses the, you know, official protection. But these games, not only had no one really ever played them before, but now, because we've got this Russian ROM hacker guy, um, CAH4E3, is <laughs> the handle he goes by, he's actually dumped these, and you can now play them on an emulator. So what's this gas game then? Are you like filling up cars? Or? <laughs> well, looking at them, they look a bit weird. I mean, I'm not sure how much kind of gameplay is in there. First of all, they're all in Japanese. So, you know, I couldn't follow anything in this video, really. But, again, I mean, there are a few people talking about the importance of just preserving these too. Mm. Because, I mean, he makes a really good point here. He said, finding a lost Konami game on the NES is the generational equivalent of unearthing a Lost Beatles song. Which is <laughs> yeah. true, isn't it? You know, it is, it's legendary. Yeah. And even if the games aren't any good, it doesn't mean they're now preserved for future generations, which I think is really cool. Yeah, it's so, uh, quite a nice find, that. Yeah, especially, I mean, it just makes you think what other kind of rare titles are just lurking in, like, you know, long-lost warehouses or, you know, dusty filing cabinets in offices <laughs> and all that, just waiting to be found. So if you want to download those and uh, give them a play, the ROMs are available right now, actually, and you can play them even on the website here. I'll link you up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, if we're talking about amazing games that we played in the 90s, we've covered before, you know, those Disney games that came out. Oh, God, they were, they were some of the best quality games that we got back in the days, like the animation on them, the gameplay, and on... All systems as well. I remember, yeah. you know, the Amiga version was quite nice and the, the uh, Mega Drive was absolutely amazing, you know, but they all ran well. I think for me, the Mega Drive is really their natural home, isn't it? Oh, that yeah. kind of scene where yeah. they belong. You know, we're talking like, about... Like the Lion King as yeah. well. My God. Yeah, well, we're <laughs> that talking game about... was so good. Well, we are talking about Aladdin and the Lion King. Now, these are um, obviously two legendary games. We've done episodes about them before. You know, you can find them in our, in our show history. But now these games have been remastered and released on current-gen systems. Excellent. So they're going to be out on the Switch, uh, the Xbox, and the PlayStation 4. And they've really given them some love as well. Now, there is um, a little article here that I'll link up in our show notes, and you can watch a little video that's embedded in here on YouTube showing you the trailer 
and they've really given these games a lot of love. And these are really made for, you know, fans of the original. Not only can you play the original Mega Drive version, they've got the Game Boy version on here as well. Cool. There's even a trade show demo of Aladdin that was a teaser that no one's ever played. And they say it also includes an explorable museum where yep. players can discover <laughs> by, behind the scenes art and interviews. That's really good. And the, you know, $30. It's not that bad a price. I think these are probably going to be more successful than the new Aladdin and the new Lion King films. <laughs> yeah, someone actually did say that in the comments. Finally, a Disney remake we're excited about. <laughs> uh, but also, I mean, they, they have upgraded these to full 1080p, 60fps. Oh, wow, okay. Give them modern graphics yeah. if you want to play that version of them too. And there is kind of, a, you know, looks like there's a little documentary kind of a making of on here. And um, I love the fact that trade show demos on there too. Yeah. You know, the amount of times you'd see like, behind-the-scenes footage on, like, Bad Influence or Games Master. I just remember sitting there with my computer singing, A whole new world. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can experience it all over again, Ravi. Um, They're going to be out on October 29th on uh, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and Nintendo Switch 2. So what I love about this, too, is there's a version in here which is you can actually watch the gameplay itself. Oh, cool. Properly. So you can sit back, you know, if you, kind of like back in the day, you might watch your brother play. How, it how to do it right. Yeah. yeah. But you can jump in at any time. So if there's a bit you can't get past, you can put it in autopilot and just jump in. And it's got stuff in there to hold modern game players' hands as a rewind function, and you can skip levels, if you, you know, all that kind of stuff. Because, I mean, you forget, Lion King was a pretty brutal game. Oh, it's really yeah. hard. Um, uh, I was playing it the other day on my emulator, and it was like save state, return to state. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's just even the part when... Um, it's just the sequences when the monkeys chuck you around and then you have to go on the yeah. <laughs> giraffe's necks. God, hard. And it, I mean, a lot of people would be like, you know, oh, rewind function, but it was actually quite welcome, especially when you get to like our age. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you want to find out more about that and the release date, your pre-orders are open right now, all the info at theretrohour.com. Now, we talk about how big retro gaming is becoming in just the mainstream world right now. Have you heard about this? Intel have done an update for their Ice Lake CPUs their new graphics drivers that are now in beta have actually got a mode in there called Retro Scaling. Now, this is designed to make pixel art games and emulators look a lot better on modern systems and modern displays. Yeah, I, I've, I've seen mixed things about this because I remember when they released um, Simon the Sorcerer and they had this new retro stuff on it and it, yeah. it, it didn't really look that good. Um it's like sharpening, isn't it? You're kind of sharpening it, but using the um, GPU to do it. So it, it could work. I've I've seen that they're using examples on Terraria, which isn't really a retro game, but they're just going, oh, you know, uh, seems to be like like a resolution scaling kind of thing. Maybe yeah. maybe they'll build it into an emulator, or there'll be a way to run it with RetroArch or something. I think anything that runs through the graphics system would it would, it would work with from what I've seen. So, yeah, I mean, if you've got an emulator running, I, yeah. mean, I imagine it would help with that too. But it's called, um, I think this is called integer scaling. What it really does is it makes the pixel art kind of graphics look less fuzzy on modern displays. It's kind of the opposite to anti-aliasing, isn't yeah. it? It's like, yeah. yeah, it sharpens them as opposed to making them blurry um, and kind of rounds out the edges and that kind of stuff yeah. too. I mean, the demos they've shown on Twitter, they put up a little like 60-second video kind of showing the comparisons between, you know, retro scaling off and on. And, you know, it does make quite a big difference actually looking at it. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure exactly if the retro community are going to take this into... I mean, most big retro gaming fans play it on original hardware and a CRT. Well, I, but, I think these modes are interesting because that M-Play Classic thing that we were talking about the other day, if you can get modes like this inside that and then use it as an external device that does it, I don't see how much use it is 
if you've got a really high end Intel PC yeah. and then you're running old school games on that, maybe <laughs> I don't know, it might might work with that. But um it seems like it's for stuff that's kind of indie titles or retro yeah. retro themed, you know. And I mean most hardcore gamers are probably not using Intel graphics anyway. No, no. <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? So I mean it's cool though. I love the fact that they're actually a company like Intel are, you know, coming out with branding, even calling it retro mode. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. I mean, it just proves how much bigger this is getting all the time. So Yeah, you think it's always been the chase for speed and power in yeah. GPUs, not retro mode. <laughs> yeah. Found a niche, you know what I mean? Something yeah, a bit yeah, different. Definitely. So uh, yeah, well done Intel. Now, just before we get into our chat all about the legendary Tony Hawk series with this week's special guest, Ralph D'Amato. He's coming up in just a minute. Now, there is um, a lot of talk about kind of classic titles that we'd like to see back. And this is quite interesting. An interview with uh, Sega's Yu Suzuki. At the moment, he's obviously working on Shenmue 3. Yeah. The big title he's been working I've, on. I've been seeing years. a lot on uh, Adam Kirillik's channel about that. Yeah. He's involved. Looks amazing. Yeah, I mean, long overdue, a new Shenmue instalment. Um, but he's also been talking to a couple of websites about other things that he might want to work on after Shenmue 3 is finished. A couple more classics he'd like to do that he spearheaded when, you know, he worked at Sega back in the day. Turns out, according to an interview with uh, the website VCG, he'd quite like to work on Outrun and Virtua Fighter. Oh, yes. I, 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 Outrun would be okay, but um, Virtua Fighter... I've seen loads of versions of Outrun everywhere, but Virtua Fighter... Man, that would be amazing. The Naomi uh, chipset, I think. Well, for me, you see, I'm the opposite way around to you. I want them to redo Outrun, a new version of it. Because Outrun, I remember, do you remember that really good version? There was one on the, the Xbox 360, Outrun 2006, that was my favourite version. And we had the one that came out on the Xbox and the PlayStation 2. Yeah. That was incredible as well, though. But That's the only reason I'm saying it, because, yeah. you know, these have come out, yeah. But, I mean, I... I can't think of any, like, recent, in the last decade or so, no kind of new versions of OutRun. And even that one that was on the, the Xbox Arcade, I love OutRun 2006, that was incredible. But then it got pulled because the Ferrari license, license expired. Ah, so you can't okay. get it from anywhere anymore. Uh-huh. And that was one of the best versions of OutRun. And, I mean, I imagine the Ferrari license is probably not cheap. Yeah. So they're probably going to have to sell it at quite a reasonable cost to make it back. But I would love to see an upgraded OutRun game Running on like Nintendo Switch or something like that would be amazing. You see, Virtual Fighter just because of the amount of different games that came with yeah. it as well. So you could do Virtual Tennis after that. You could do a Virtual Cop as well, which was that on rail shooter. You know, all of, all of the virtual series. You might if they did a nice implementation. And it's cool that he's kind of thinking about doing it. I mean, this is not the only time I've read him talking about that. There's been a couple of interviews where he's kind of mentioned Sega obviously owned the IPs. So you'd have to go with them. But at the moment, Sega seem really into the retro thing. So yeah. I can see them being up for it if he is. Virtua, that's how you say it. I'll get told off for saying What do you we saying? Virtual. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well, I already read the tweets coming in. Virtua Fighter, Rev. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so I think Virtua Fighter, though, I was never a massive fan of that franchise. I played it in the arcades and, um, yeah, I played it on, like, the Saturn and the 32 It's like X, when but... I came into the arcade and I saw that yeah. just complete, even though it was blocky, yeah. It was like the sun looked real, the sky looked blue, and it was just a world that I'd never been to before. So 
Virtual Fighter was really good. Maybe if I'd seen Tekken sooner, I might have been like, what's this? But, you yeah, know. you're right. The 3D was impressive because it was the first kind of 3D fighter I'd seen as well, but it was all about Mortal Kombat by then. You know, it was like... Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, yeah it would be welcome back, though. So if we hear any more about that, we'll keep you posted. Now, before we get into our chat with this week's special guest, Ralph D'Amato, he's coming up in just a minute. Let's give a huge thank you to another big supporter of the Retro Hour podcast. These are our very good friends at The Economist. Now, we'd like to give you your own free print copy of The Economist through your door. Now, they've been going over 170 years. The Economist have been a trusted source of intelligence and bringing you news for things that really matter that are happening in the world around you. Now, it covers obviously the economy and finance, but also stuff that we really find interesting, technology, science, the arts, environment, video games we've talked about. And every week on the show, we look for an article in The Economist that we've really found interesting this week. And today, things falling from space. Yeah, this is well interesting. So every day, uh, a ton or two of uh, defunct satellites, rocket parts and other man-made stuff kind of comes into our atmosphere but uh, a lot of it gets burnt up you know uh, no one's ever actually been hit by space junk yet yet um, that's yet. the operative word <laughs> uh, well killed by space junk apart from um, five sailors aboard a Japanese vessel that were hit by an artificial hailstorm in 1969 or a woman in Oklahoma who was grazed by a piece of falling rocket in 1997 and uh, they're saying as the world kind of grows and the Earth's surface gets smaller and the areas we can occupy, we've got more of a chance of kind of space rubbish coming and hitting us. So one day someone is going to get hit by a piece of space rubbish. That is really interesting. I've always thought that when you watch those kind of, you know, the rocket launches and stuff, you know, NASA do and everything, and you always think, you know, there's bits that just drop off the rocket. Like you said, I imagine a lot of them do burn up, but you always think, what if they don't? Like, Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like there's that bit in gravity, isn't yeah. it, where they're getting hit by other pieces of space junk and it's like, ah. <laughs> so imagine that, you get all your house looking nice, Rav. You're in your place you moved into two years ago. Yeah. And a satellite falls through your roof. <laughs> Thruster lands on my foot. <laughs> Who do you even go to if that happens? <laughs> I think, you know, that game that came out in Spectrum, Jetpack. Yeah. You send someone up there <laughs> to collect all the space bits that are floating around. Re- there, return right to now. NASA. <laughs> now, these are the kind of things you can read about in The Economist. And we would like to give you your own free print copy of The Economist through your door. Now, if you live in the UK, you'll be really helping out the podcast by doing this. Just grab your phone right now and text the word retro and send it to 78070. And you will get your own free print copy of The Economist landing through your door on us. So text retro and send it to 78070 with The Economist, the smart guide to the forces changing your world. Right, let's talk about the legendary Tony Hawk series. This week's special guest, Ralph D'Amato. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest, getting the inside story on one of the biggest sports franchises ever and by far the biggest skating series. Talking about those amazing Tony Hawk's games, let's get on this week's guest, Ralph DiMarto. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me on and... uh... Yeah, good to be here. Yeah, amazing to talk to you now. Um, we're going to get into, you know, obviously those amazing games and also the movie that you're working on at the moment too. But to kind of go back to like day one, what kind of first got you into video games then? Do you remember your kind of earliest memory of games? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm going to age myself quite a bit here. Um, uh, but the the first real thing that, that I, I touched video game-wise was a Pong console we had at, at home. It was... 
it was just, and I don't remember the actual name of it. I'm sure my parents probably bought it at Sears or something. Um, and it, you, it had variety of, of different Pong games. Um, and, and that was, that was really the first thing I had as a, as a kid. And then from that, you know, moved on to my, my Atari 2600 and, you know, I was an arcade rat. I'd spent pretty much all my quarters that I had in, in the arcades is, you know, obviously a completely different situation back, you know, back in the, the early eighties, mid eighties than it is now where all of my fond arcades are gone. But, um, you know, I, everything from the, the beginnings, you know, the space invaders and Pac-Man to, to even, you know, some of the stand-up games, but I, I've always been an arcade and a video game kind of kid, you know, from, from even early start. Well, kind of like the um, skateboarding as well. The arcades came and then uh, they kind of went and then came back again. Were you involved at all in that like first wave of skateboarding stuff in the seventies, eighties? I mean, I I was you know I, I had a skateboard. I had you know it's kind of funny to see the 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 recent. I guess it's kind of died down now. Revival of kind of the penny board styles, and that was what I had as a as a kid in um, the, you know, mid, late 70s when I was growing up in, in New York. Um, and, you know, you, you didn't do tricks on those boards. Um, you basically used it when you didn't want to ride your bike or if it was if it was close enough that you didn't have to get your bike out, you just grabbed your skateboard and would go and skate. Um, and then moving, you know, earlier, moving to, to, to you know, California, then I, I, I never considered myself a skateboarder, but I did skate and I, you know, skated for transportation and fun, but not, no tricks, never learned how to ollie. And uh, for some of our listeners that might not know the difference between kind of 80s skateboarding and 90s was 80s was influenced by all the surfers and they'd do the vertical ramp stuff and the 90s was kind of the street stuff. So uh, Rodney William would do all this spinning around on his board and then in the 90s he adapted it. Yeah, yeah, I took a lot of the freestyle elements that he was doing and, and adapted it to the streets and I mean, skateboarding has always gone through, uh, you know, different waves of, of popularity and changes and, you know, things have come in and gone out and it's kind of, that's, that's the way the, the activity is. And it'll, I think that's the way it's going to continue to be. So yeah, it's always changed. Well, I remember in the eighties, I remember my brother had a copy of um, Skate or Die by Electronic Arts. It was one of the first skating games I played and we had stuff like, you know, California games and those kind of games coming out. I mean, were you like a fan of like games like that back then? I don't recall. I mean, I recall seeing those games. I didn't have um, the consoles that those games were on. I, at that point, you know, I was mostly in, in art, you know, dealing with arcade and arcade games and then moved on to PC games. And I really didn't mess with consoles. Like I, I, after, you know, after getting my, my computer, my first computer, I think it was like 92 or something. Um, or no, sorry, it was not 92. It was about 87, 88. I just was a computer gamer and didn't really mess with much of, of the console stuff. So I knew about it. I had friends that, you know, I could go over to their house and check these games out, but I didn't really play them that much. The, the one skateboard game that I played a ton of, though, was 720 in the arcade. I mean, I, I put a ton of quarters in, into that, you know trying to get away from the bees and, and going to all the different skate parks that you could. So, yeah, that, that definitely had an influence on me for sure. Well, how did you get your kind of job in the video games industry and did you aim for that job in the first place? No, I mean, it was sort of luck. Um, well, I mean, a little bit of luck and a little bit of that I had. Uh, I had some knowledge and some skill that could help out on, on Neversoft's team. But, I, you know, when I went to when I was going to college, I graduated in 92. There were no 
production, you know, video game production <laughs> positions. You know, there was there was no because back then video games were developed by a very small team, maybe even one person. So you didn't need a producer. You weren't looking at a team that you needed to manage. So as games got larger and larger and the teams got larger, then obviously it necessitated uh, somebody managing, keeping schedules and budgets and all that good stuff. So I was fortunate enough to have known Joel Jewett. Um, he was uh, he was a friend of a friend, and you know I'd gone on camping trips with him, and you know we talked about his video game company over the years, and you know it was always it was always like one of those things where I was you know fascinated with wow you you work you're making you're making video games because they they were such a passion of mine from from a hobbyist perspective. Um, so I would pick his brain constantly about what he's doing with these video games, and and uh, and he knew that you know I, I I was really interested in it. So, you know, out of the blue, he called me and asked if uh, they they had Activision had just given you know signed them up to do a couple of games. Um, he needed some production help. He was having a difficult time finding you know somebody that that would kind of jibe with the team and help them in in organizing stuff and produce and. And I kind of jumped in. <laughs> you know, I took a. I was in sales at the time. I was a sales guy, and I was doing quite well. I, you know, I had a house. I was, I was doing fine. But um, I kind of just up and left my entire career that I had done and, and jumped ship and went over um, to work for Joel. And when I got there, it was you know they like I said they had two games. Um, there was the, as I was told by Joel, there was this big licensed title, and that was Spider Man. And since I didn't really have any experience in the production side or the creation side of video games, that was kind of too big of a, of a licensed game to kind of put me on. So I was going to be put on this smaller skateboarding game. <laughs> and, and that's how I got, I, I kind of got started in video games. On, that was Tony Hawk 1. It was my very first project. Because I know they're doing um, Apocalypse, the game that had uh, Bruce Willis um, yes. on it, didn't it, as well? I mean, that, that was quite a big start to get involved in the game especially for like a you know kind of a, an early title for the company yeah so be, prior to apocalypse there was an, there were a couple other games that kind of started and stopped and then they had shipped an, a game called skeleton warriors on playstation i believe and then uh that kind of put them and then they were working there was another game mdk it was a, a port that they were working on again before my time i don't really know much about it um, and they were shopping around a, a bunch of different things, and Neversoft was seriously struggling at that time. I mean, there were, there were people that were that were getting IOUs for paychecks in hopes that you know there was something good on the you know on the horizon. Um, Apocalypse, you know, that was their their first um, sort of venture with Activision, and it was one of those games that I again I wasn't there at this time, but from my recollection, it had gone through a couple previous developers. And it stalled a few times. And again, it was one of those licensed titles, you know, with Bruce Willis. So uh, Neversoft kind of stepped up and knocked out that game in, in fairly short amount of time in video game time. I think it was, you know, nine months to a year or something. They finished it after it had been stalled for so long. And I believe that was what impressed Activision enough to then give Neversoft the additional two titles, Spider-Man and Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. Um, what was the culture like at Neversoft? Um, I heard they had really small teams. Yeah, I mean, the first team, the skate team, there was like 13 to 14 of us that worked on. The last, you know, just in comparison, the last game, Project 8, there was probably about 150 people on that team. So it, it's, you know, it, it, the, 
the team size drastically changed with the new consoles and the expectations of having, you know, reality. And you can't just have this, you know, this colored texture on people's heads. They, they, they want to see, you know, hair moving and all this stuff. So it necessitates having to, you know, if you want to get a game done every year, which I mean, in development time, when you count being in submission and all that stuff, you're really looking at about nine months of development time. You know, you have to you have to really step it up, especially when the you know the expectations of other games just get bigger and bigger. So, but it was nice at the beginning having that small team, and the culture was great. It was like it was sort of being like on a sports team. You know, when the game was on, when the when the video game was in production, everybody was giving it a hundred percent, and you know there was no expectations of people <laughs> taking off or or vacations or you know even at, and then towards the end, you know even weekends we were we were there. So. When you go through that kind of stuff, you kind of make tight bonds with people, and I still, I still consider a lot of the guys my friends. You know, I still hang out with them. So, well, that first game, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, when that came out, I mean, that was an absolute phenomenon. Um, what was kind of the story with Activision approaching Neversoft with the game, and what's kind of the background on it then? Where, where did that kind of idea and the, the story for the game come from then? Uh, you know, at the time, Activision, I don't think was in the best shape financially. I don't, I don't know that they, you know, they, this was all pre Call of Duty, you know, and, and World of Warcraft and all the major titles that they have now, you know, so there weren't that many titles in their, in their arsenal. And, and, uh, I do think that, that this title, you know, had a huge impact in, in, in the finances of Activision. I know it had a huge impact in, in all, everybody on the team and all the skaters as well. So uh, did it save Activision? I don't know. I, I, you know I'm, not, I'm not their accounting person, but I know that it definitely put them in a different level having a, a franchise that now is beating you know, Madden. So, I mean, it's kind of a, kind of a nice place that, that we got them to, I think. Yeah, I mean, we were talking before we started recording. I mean, Ravi mentioned, you know, having that demo on the PlayStation magazine demo disc. That like yeah. 10 minutes long and every kid at school would just play that. I mean, that game was, did you imagine that it was going to be so big? Or did, do you think it just kind of fit in with that skating culture and music at the time as well? No, I don't think any of us really had too much of a thought like that. Oh, this is going to blow up, and you know we're going to—it's going to be a number one game. Or we—we we were just aiming at making a, a game that was fun for us, that we enjoyed, and that you know that we thought other people would like too. You know, we—we really—we got sort of an inkling of things when we started having um, focus testers come in, and you know they were really, really loving the game to the point that some of them were like, "Can we stay longer?" and what, can I come back? And, you know, that kind of thing. Um, we were getting a little bit worried because we weren't getting any negative feedback. And, you know, it, you can't work on anything. You can't fix issues if you're not getting any negative feedback. So it's that was a little worrisome. But definitely when when the demo hit, um, it uh, it you know, it kind of opened everybody's eyes as to, well, there's some something going on here. And uh, yeah, it was it was kind of a and one of the one of the cool things with the demo, um, sort of an insider thing. That demo, like all of the Sony demos, they're supposed to just be one tries, and then you go back. And this is I'm talking about well, pretty much all of them, but Tony Hawk One demo. Uh, they they are all aimed at you know being one try demos, and then you go back to the main menu, and then you could you know try again. We added in the ability for you to retry, thinking that when we went through you know. QA at Sony, they were going to kick us back and say, no, 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 you can't retry. You have to go back to the main screen. But 
I think they like the game so much that, that they never marked us down for it. So you're able to keep playing it over and over and over again without having to go back to the main title. So that was kind of a nice little feature in our demo too. About two weeks ago, we actually had the editor of the uh, British um, PlayStation magazine on, um, a guy called Steve Jarrett. And he was talking about that demo. He kind of wondered whether, you know, if having those demos on there would actually sell more games or whether kids would just stick with the demos. I mean, <laughs> obviously the game was a massive hit though, so I guess it did work. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it, you know, I think it's, it did its job. For us, mm. as far as we're concerned, uh, it, it, it did its job and then some. You know, it, it gave people a little taste. Um, but you're right, even that demo, you could play it for a very long time. You could conceivably keep playing it, mess around with different areas of, of the warehouse with your friends and so forth. So it, uh, it definitely added a lot of, you know, hours of, of play for, for people for free so that was nice but i mean i think it spread the word which was great for us well the new thing with this kind of cd technology was uh, full soundtracks on games and uh, gta showed us a really good soundtrack and uh, tony hawk's pro skater the soundtrack was awesome um did you kind of go around looking for tunes and artists to come on board and how did you um, guys pick the songs yeah, I mean, initially there, you know, we we worked. So I, I one of my production duties became the soundtrack and managing the soundtrack. So the way the process ended up is it was a group of us that would meet and have you know meetings weekly, and we would kind of come in and throw out songs and and different tracks that we that we liked that we thought would fit the game. Early on, I think there were the the first couple, uh, first one, uh, I think the. Yeah, the first one there was there was music music producers and there were internal folks at, at Activision as well as in NeverSoft that made suggestions. Then it became more of a like I said, more of a committee, a music group. I would organize everything in spreadsheets, you know, get MP3s of all the songs because you know back then you couldn't just YouTube a song and have it come up. Um, so it was a little bit more more involved. And then. You know, each title we had a specific budget on how much we could spend on music. And I would work with, there was a music supervisor, Tim Riley at Activision. I would work with him and he would then reach out to all the the bands and the labels to do all the licensing. And, you know, it was sort of one of those juggling games. Um, one of the things with skateboarding is, you know, although it is heavy in punk rock and the culture, I think skate culture starts with that, it's gone everywhere. So you have a variety of people, that like variety of music that you have to kind of cater to. So we're the first game, I, th- I can't remember the number of tracks, I'm going to say a dozen maybe. I think the, the last game had something in the neighborhood of 80 tracks. Um, and, you know, you could turn off and on tracks, you can kind of make your own playlist, you can use your own music. So the music I, became very involved in the game and you know it's wrapped in this the culture of skateboarding as well so it kind of goes hand in hand you think about that you said like 12 tracks that's like an album's worth of music so not only you're making the game you're doing an album at the same time as well yeah yeah Yeah. you know it's fortunate that there's a lot of good stuff to choose from and over the years there you know there were we got a lot of submissions from from indie bands i put my own band in it at one in thug two so it's it's uh it was a fun experience. It was it was just um, you know it, it was always interesting coming up with that final selection of songs and what you know what things we wanted and we just couldn't get or we ended up getting we didn't think we were going to get and that whole thing. So at what point did uh, Tony Hawk get involved and how much involvement did he have in the project? 
So he, I, I started, I started at Neversoft in December of 98. I was talking to Tony about this. I believe he started a few, couple months before me. He started, he signed on. Um, I think it was August of 98. They'd been talk, they'd been talks for quite a while, I'm sure. But, um, and certainly when Tony came on board, the, the, the advice and the suggestions and I mean, the, the, you know, basically picking the skaters and telling us which skaters should be in the game, telling us the, the tricks and showing us the tricks and, and giving us kind of, I mean, there were, there were a few, a couple of us on the team. Uh, I had, you know, had a very limited knowledge of skate tricks. There were Chris Roush is a designer. He skated as a kid. He had a much more vast knowledge of skate terminology, you know, front side, backside, all of this different stuff that the average person doesn't really even, you know, understand when they're looking at skateboarding. But if you want to make a skateboarding game true to skateboarding, you've got to kind of get that stuff right. Otherwise you look foolish. Um, so Tony really lended a hand in keeping it authentic. And, you know, once we got builds, we would, you know, every week we had a goal to, to have a build of the game, a new build of the game on a weekly basis. You know, I'd package it up and, and FedEx it to him. Again, the internet wasn't that great back then, so it wasn't, I wasn't really sending stuff to him over the internet. FedEx him, you know, a build that he could mess around with, and then he could give us feedback on what he thought. If there are specific things like, hey, we're, what do you think of how this trick looks or uh, what do you think of this mechanic? Um, he could he could provide feedback and, you know, it worked out well. Tony was super easygoing. He was really easy to, to, to connect with and he was always um, sharp on providing replies. So it was, you know, it was, it was great working with him for sure. And it was really well done with all the individual skaters because each skater would have their own defined moves and it would make it seem like a, a, a kind of skate community thing. You know, um, if someone had a goofy stance, they'd start in that or something. And it kind of brought a lot of names like Rodney Mullen and stuff out to people that um, didn't know these skaters so well. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, they'll... They'll tell you that themselves, and you know the doc, and you know the documentary I'm working on. When the interviews, just kind of hearing some of the stories from these guys of how how it impacted them and some of the things that happened to them along the way because of the video game. It's it's it's, it's really interesting for sure. I mean, the locations and the level design is obviously legendary in the games too. I mean, did you kind of base those on real life spots? Yeah, as much as we could. Um, it got a little bit trickier as you know, realism increased because of licensing and legal issues. Um, for instance, you know, the, the Arco building downtown LA is a, or used to be, maybe it is still a, a giant skate spot, but Arco was not cool with us putting their building in the game. <laughs> so you kind of had to run a line, um, you know, with, with, with spots like Real location spots like Skater Island, we would we would actually and Activision would reach out to them and, and do a, a license deal with them to, you know, for coverage in our in the video game, we'd get to use the design of their park in, in the game and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, we tried to use as many real world locations as we could, especially when we, you know, when we had just countries or, or Australia, you know, we'd we'd go or Spain, you know, Spain as a level, the guy we we send out, fly out, a, you know, a team designer and an artist to go and, you know, really take reference shots of all these different key skate spots in Spain. And then the designer's job was <clears throat> to kind of seam them into this level that sort of makes sense if you go there and lines up, but, you know, it's all kind of a, a combination of different parts of the city mixed together. So, 
yeah, the goal was to make it. And, you know, obviously that again was a nod to, to the skate community when they saw things in there that they knew in real life, it was like, whoa, these guys get it. You know, they understand. Um, or a lot of other video games that were making the videos, skateboard video games, they, they weren't doing that. They were just making wacky. And we, we had crazy locations too, but we, we, uh, we definitely did our share of, of real world spots. And it's kind of funny when I go to some of these spots, like Love Park, for instance, I, I went a few years back and it's just kind of, it's kind of weird. It's a little eerie feeling because I, <laughs> I feel comfortable, like I know it, but I've never been there. <laughs> I could, and I could tell you where things are, but I've never been there <laughs> in real life. So it's, it's kind of fun. Well, uh, as a lot of games kind of did at the time, you did uh, collecting items to complete levels. And I find the coolest one really worked with the skate scene at the time was a uh, Finding the Secret Tape. Uh, do you remember that skate magazine, uh, 411VM, I think? Yes. They yeah, used yeah, to, for sure. They used to dig holes and leave merchandise in a certain yep. area, film it, and then the kids would just run and rampage to get that secret <laughs> tape and dig yeah, up the yeah. whole area. <laughs> it reminded yeah, Ronnie, me of that. Ronnie Krieger, yeah, Ronnie Krieger used to do that a lot on, on 411. Yeah, that was... that. We had subscription to 411 at the office. I was... And, and literally every lunch, we watched skate videos. So... And that was sort of the, that the, really... the idea behind behind that. I mean, we, we had to get ourselves into the skate culture. So pretty much every line, I was going to skate shops, buying every skate, you know, VHS tape that I could find. And we would blister through them at lunch while we're watching, while we're eating, we're, we're watching skate and, and kind of absorbing the culture. Well, that also really worked well with the um, kind of full motion video on the PlayStation and having that yeah. extra, extra element of entertainment. Yeah, yeah, the FMV, the, the the video and the video walls and all that good stuff. Um, yeah, and I and I, you know, they they work well as unlockables. I think you know people, once they realize, oh, I get a video of this character after I blaster that, then it kind of inspired them to I want to blaster the game with all of with all the skaters. So you know, it was, it was you know, it was a nice little reward at the end of your your hard work of playing a video game. <laughs> well, you mentioned about the FMV stuff in there too. I mean, you had some great textures in there too. That full soundtrack, fitting all that onto a single CD-ROM was that like quite a challenge? Yeah, yeah. That's Mick West, um, lead lead um, programmer and kind of one of the partners. One of the partners, original three at NeverSoft. Um, yeah, you know, I, I I can't tell you how compression algorithms work. <laughs> But I can tell you if anybody, you know, Mick was kind of like the king at getting everything to fit on the disc and getting things to, to work properly, even to the point of, you know, having to map out the location of the data on the disc. So when, you know, you have music on the outside, music and video on the outside of the, of the disc that because it's spinning faster, so you get better reads and just really crazy stuff that that he and, and uh, the other programming t team others in the programming team did to compress and still provide the quality that that you know that we got so it was a it was a juggling act for sure and every year every time we moved to a new platform we moved from cd to dvd we're like oh wow look at all this extra space we always ended up filling it up <laughs> yeah. well, talking about the development of the first game i mean was was there anything you kind of remember during development that either got changed or got cut from the original title? There were, I mean, there were a couple level ideas that were cut. There was this freeway thing that, that we were going to do that, that was just very initial layout that got cut. I believe there were, there might've been a, I'm not sure if it was one or two, a San Francisco part that got cut. Um, 
And I'm, and I'm fairly certain that we had already started work on the manual in one, but the work to get that all working properly throughout the, the game was going to be way too much to include it in one. But I, I could be wrong. I, it's kind of, again, it's a little bit hazy, but I'm, I'm fairly certain we were at the beginnings of doing that. Um, and, you know, it was, it was kind of a good and bad thing. We would get bummed that certain things couldn't make it, but it, also, it would also be the start of a punch list for the next game, you know? And we knew, like, well, this, we want to explore this stuff that we didn't get to do in the last one. Well, Tony Hawk's 2 was a great kind of improvement because you just improved a few things, you kept the same engine. And uh, a few features that were added were like the level editor. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It was also probably one of the sources of the most uh, the most bugs that we had <laughs> in, the, in the game and the most bug fixing. Um, as you can imagine, when you move things around and let people have... Um, the ability to uh, to kind of have the freedom back then, and it, it just it was a difficult task. And and I'm not saying like there was a lot of bugs because of the programming. Ryan Ryan McMahon was the programmer that that headed that piece of it up, and it was a, it'd be a daunting ta- task for anybody. And I and I think he did a bang up job on it for sure. But it's just. Um, you know, so many different variables, so many things that you don't have control over. And the biggest one of it, that, those variables is the people designing, you know, people would just make really crazy stuff that you had no idea. Why would you ever want to do that? And, uh, and it would break the game. So it, it's, um, it was, it was an incredible, re- really cool part of the, the, the project and the game as a whole, but it was, it was a bear for sure. Well, the multiplayer and additions and the kind of uh, skater mini games were like taken directly from real life. That was the first time I'd kind of seen. Well, we didn't call it horse; we used a, a swear word instead of the word horse. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Was, oh, everybody did. Yeah, sure. the first time we'd seen that actually put on a screen and as a game that you could play. Yeah, and actually, I mean, between my friends and my brother, and you know, that was horse is what we played all the time. You know, it was always a fun two-player game that you could mess around with. Um, you know, until until we got into three, which then brought you full online. Um, yeah, I, I those those games were were super fun to to mess around with. Well, was the Neversoft engine used on any other titles? Um, I'm fairly certain it was used on all of the O2 titles. I don't know if you recall, like the O2 lineup that Activision had, where they then expanded and and um, they did Matt Hoffman and and. Uh, the uh, there was a snowboarding. I don't remember all of the names. Sean Palmer was a snowboarding game. I think there yeah. was a wakeboarding game they did, um, and a surfing game. Uh, so all of I'm 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 pretty certain all of those were developed on the NeverSoft engine. Um, I don't know that anything else. You know, Gun was obviously de- developed at NeverSoft, so it's the NeverSoft engine as well. Um, but I, I don't re- I don't know of any other titles that that might have used it. Well. When you started seeing other games coming out, uh, kind of skating games, uh, uh, BMX games, I remember an awful one, BMX XXX, which was like a <laughs> yeah, s- sexy X, BMX yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what what yeah, did you yeah. start to think? And uh, uh, well, were you, know, you I mean, guys threatened yeah, at we, all? We bought all of them. Um, I don't think we felt threatened. Um, and I think that was also part of the strong leadership of Joel Jewett. No one was going to threaten Joel. Um, so I don't think we felt threatened. I think some of those games, we, you know, there are learning experiences. There are things that we, you know, we could learn from, uh, 
a lot of it was learn what not to do, you know, for, for, <laughs> fortunately for us. Um, but, you know, we, we definitely, we looked at all of them and, and it was interesting. They were all using the const- exact control scheme that, that we created, you know, and, and uh, but, you know, I guess, what do they say? Uh, the, the finest form of flattery is somebody imitating you. I guess, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, that's, that's kind of how we, we eventually took it. I'm sure, you know, there are some points where we were, we're, we're very, uh, you know, um, not obsessed, but protective of our license and of our title. But all we had to do is just wait till the numbers came out, the sales numbers. And every year it was, you know, one after another, these other games started going by the wayside. Well, the, the most drastic change I kind of remember was when Tony Hawk's Underground came out and it kind of introduced this storyline with the actors, you know, Bam Magira and the guys from Jackass. And uh, I really enjoyed that. How did it go down with the fans? Um, I think, you know, obviously there, I think it did well. If you look at the, the sales numbers that that game did extremely well, um, it, it, uh, it definitely took the series into a different direction where with, uh, with story, as opposed to, you know, it's just more of a platformer as it was. Um, I enjoyed it. I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a huge story video game guy. I'm more about just gameplay, pure gameplay. So, it was, you know, it was, I, I enjoyed the story. Was it something that I was like, well, this is for me, this is the biggest part of the game. No, but, um, I, you know, I, I know that other people, I know, um, the director of my film, Ludwig Gurr, I know he loved the story. <laughs> so, so I, you know, it had a different impact for different people, but we were always trying to figure out a new way to, to bring the game to people with a different little flavor. So, we didn't just get labeled as, oh, it's just the same old game, you know. Um, and you got you to gotta kind of keep it fresh, which is what we were trying to do. Were there any features that you wanted to see in Tony Hawk games that never got implemented or anything that was kind of talked about that never happened? Um, you know, there's so much stuff that we did. And the one thing I think, and this has no bearing so much on the the playability, it's more of a feel thing, it would have been great to be able to really imitate and, and capture the different style of the skaters. And what I mean is like, I've watched enough Tony Hawk that if there's a shadow of Tony Hawk, I know that's Tony Hawk. I've watched enough Rodney Mullen. If there's a shadow of Rodney Mullen doing tricks, I know that's Rodney because I know his style and I, and I can, you know, I, I know he's got the, he's, he puts his fingers out, you know, we were never able, we had really a, a single generic skater style. So everybody did the same kickflip. Everybody said the same 360 flip. When in, in reality, skaters do things differently and they look different, even though it's the same trick and their styles are different. Um, it would have required a decent, you know, overhaul of animation and technology and and maybe bang for the buck. You know, I, I don't know, but it would have been great to have the skater that uh, you know the characters in the game, the style of them resemble the style of the, the skaters. What did you guys think of Skate when it came out? Um, I that again that added more of that stylistic approach that I enjoyed. But the problem I had with Skate is my fingers were so just accustomed to like just the Tony Hawk controls that I could not get my head out of being able to play that game because I I just I did not want to relearn a control system and I was already really pretty decent at the Tony Hawk controls. 
And I, even if I did try to learn my, just, you know, just finger memory would just go back to Tony Hawk and I'd get frustrated and, and I didn't, I didn't really play it all that much. I know it, you know, it kind of split the community, um, the Tony Hawk community and, and, and kind of split the, the sales and, and so forth. And, and, you know, I know there are uh, huge fans of, of the feel, you know, the, the kind of the flicking and kind of that feel of it, but I wasn't, I'm not, I'm not in that camp. I'm, I kind of, you know, just more of a Tony Hawk controls <laughs> guy. I, I guess. can never so pop never... an ollie on that game. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I mean, and, and really there were, there was a game. So when we were coming out with Tony Hawk one Thrasher skate and destroy came out, I think they actually even came out a little before us mm. and their game was also more a realistic game. It was more of, um, you know, it was, you kind of had to learn to do the tricks, you know, from a starting point of, of really nothing, just pushing around. So it was very similar to skateboarding. And you even got chased by a security guard, I remember. Yeah, and I don't, and it didn't do that well. And, you know, you can't just, it's a balance. You can't, you, you, and when it comes to skateboarding video games, you can't just, you know, cater to the gamers or the skaters. You want to have a balance. And I think that balance was too skewed to the skaters and not the video gamers, where skaters, really loved Thrasher because it did kind of depict what they were doing a little bit better. But I mean, come on, if you want reality, go get a skateboard, go outside <laughs> and skate. <you> know? <laughs> well, Proving Ground was an amazing title, but there were quite a few delays with a late demo, etc. Uh, what happened then? I, that's, I, I wasn't involved in Proving Ground from a development standpoint. I was over at, I was over at Tony Hawk Inc. at that point, um, working for Tony and, and, uh, after eight years of working at Neversoft, I, I kind of needed a, a, a switch and took a pretty decent sized vacation. And then Tony offered me a position over there. So I, I don't really know any of the details of, of Proving Ground. I can only imagine, you know, I wasn't there anymore. So <laughs> uh, did, did you did you enjoy Project 8 as well? And uh, what did you yeah. think of that uh, kind of uh, wrapping up the series, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I enjoyed it. I, you know, it was... It, Obviously, my heart and, you know, the heart of my, uh, for me, was at the beginning of the series. And there were a lot of the original guys, had, you know, as do people do, they, they, they go on, do their own things and go on to other, other projects and, and leave and so forth. So it was a little, you know, it was a little bittersweet. I, um, I still had my heart in, in the Tony Hawk video game, but I, I really needed to, to take a break um, uh, and, and look for something else to do. Um, and uh, yeah, and so I, I with really without any any plans, I was just gonna kind of sell my house, move back down to Orange County where my family and friends were, and then figure out what I was gonna do after that. And uh, you know, sent around my little emails to people to tell them, hey, it was great working with you. And Tony offered me a job, <laughs> which was kind of nice. <laughs> well, moving to the present day, pretending yeah. I'm a Superman. So yes. this is a movie with the story of Tony Hawk's Skater Games. Why did this need to be told? And where did the idea come from to make a movie about it? So I, I think both myself and, and my director, Ludwig, he, we both thought about doing a documentary for a while. He is more of a, uh, comes from more of a, a fan perspective. Myself, just more of telling the story of this kind of phenomenon that, that happened and occurred um, through a video game that really the expectations weren't very high for and just just the, the impact that it had not only with the team and the skaters 
but the fans globally and, 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 you know, even the musicians that were involved in, in the, in the video game, we've, we've interviewed a few of them that, that tell their stories on how the game impacted them. So it's been in both of our heads for some time and it kind of took us to cross paths on YouTube, I think for, for, for us to then go, okay, let's, let's do this. And that's kind of what happened. He, um, he had this video on YouTube. Uh, it was a fan video of sort of the, the history of all the Tony Hawk games. And it was really amazing detail. My wife um, inspired me to, to reach out to him because, you know, as a, as a guy, you're not going to leave a message for somebody on YouTube. So I, I, but I did, and we ended up connecting and, you know, I actually visited him out in Sweden and then we started talking about this documentary. And, and I think right around 20, 2016 is, is when we started really putting our heads forward on it. And, started reaching out to skaters, Rodney and Tony, and they were totally, yeah, you got to do this and totally down to be in it. And there was just so many different people pushing me to doing it and so many things kind of pushing me to doing it that it was kind of one of those things, okay, well, we're going to do it. And he and I sort of took the idea and have, have been running with it and we're just at sort of the tail end of the process now. Well, how much of the stuff that we're going to see in there is kind of like never before heard stories and maybe stuff like, you know, footage and designs that haven't been seen before? Is there much of that in there? Yeah, we've got a bit of, I mean, we've got a, a, a bunch of all of the above, um, you know, stories directly from the, from the people involved, not, you know, in, in, and they're, I'm sure they're repeats of stuff that you've seen in magazines, but now you get the opportunity to actually see the, the, the skaters. Um, we've got a number of the, the original skaters from, from the game. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's been a, it's been a, a passion project for, for a while now. And, um, yeah, I, 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 we're, we're all excited about its release. We just, we just released our trailer, um, to celebrate the 20th anniversary of, of Tony Hawk's pro skater hitting the shelf in, in 99. Um, so if you go to, if you go to our, our webpage, thpsfilm.com, you can check it out. Or if you hit up any of our social media at thpsfilm. You can you can check it out. So yeah, we're we're super excited. Well, it's great to see like people like Rodney Mullen in it as well because there's been a, a wider kind of look at skateboarding. Uh, I recently saw his TED talk that he did. Yeah, and yeah. Um, it's great to have these legends actually all together and kind of all in one place. Yeah, Rodney's Rodney's one of my favorites. He and I, I, I you know I keep in touch with Rodney. Um, we we're, we're friends. We we've we'll continue to be friends. He's He's one of my favorite individuals. Uh, he's such a creative, he's got such a creative brain and uh, he's just a great all-around person to, to, to talk to and to be around. And, and he's super, super inspiring for sure. A TED Talk, I loved it. You know, any, anytime that he does any of those kind of talks or if you check them out in, in the, uh, the Bones Brigade documentary, he was, he was really, really good in that as well. So how far along is the movie now then? And can you give us any exclusives? This is going to be out on Friday this week. <laughs> no, we, 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 haven't really, we haven't announced a, a release date quite yet. Um, we're just kind of doing the final um, round of, of just tidying things up and taking care of licensing and legal issues and, and just dealing with all the, you know, finding distribution and, and uh, all of that good stuff. We're, we're definitely shooting for it to be um, out by the end of the year, um, we just don't have a, a date quite yet. How do you plan to distribute it? Um, VHS 411 style, in the words <laughs> yeah, yeah, would yeah, be yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, I think we're going to stick to streaming this time. <laughs> 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 yeah, 
Yeah, there's this new thing called Hulu. <laughs> <laughs> you can't get yeah, that on your VHS yeah. recorder, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, I mean, I, you know, it is kind of funny. We we do get, uh, I, you know, from the press and from the from the the trailer that we dropped, we've, we've getting emails from lots of different people asking to help out and things and. And, you know, even things like, when are you going to do a theatrical trailer? And these are things I hadn't thought about. Like, I, I, this is just sort of a, a, a small documentary that Ludwig and I have been working on. We're probably, you know, we're looking to get it into some streaming services, hopefully all of them, um, and, you know, go from there. We'll, we'll, we'll see, you know. Maybe we'll, I'll send you. If, if, if we do get, a, a, if there are companies out there still pressing VHS tapes, hit me up. <laughs> we'll let you know if anyone gets in touch. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Ralph, it's been incredible getting your stories. I mean, that, that game really did change the world. And, you know, it's got some great memories for Ravi and I as well. So, and what a great, you know, 20th anniversary celebration to be working on this movie as a tribute to Tony Hawks as well. So um, really appreciate you coming on this week and sharing your stories, Ralph. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for reaching out. And, uh, yeah, I appreciate all the kind words about, uh, about all of our hard work. And, again, I, just to reiterate... It wasn't me. There, were, there was a big team of guys, that, guys and, and gals that worked on that video game to make the, the success of it happen. Um, and, and everyone put their hearts into it. And we're really all, all happy when we get to hear these stories of people that enjoyed it so much. So thanks for having me on.